are listening to another episode of Geek USA, a podcast dedicated to the nerdier side of music, movies, and television. And we are your hosts. My name is Jim. And my name is Carl. And on this episode, we are going to be discussing the third release from Trent Reznor's Nine Inch Nails, the uncompromising double album that is The Fragile. Cool. All right, Carl, this week we are talking about the Nine Inch Nails album, The Fragile. And I think that my biggest concern with this podcast off the top was, is this the one we should be talking about? Test. Come on. This microphone doesn't sit nearly as close to my face anymore. I'm sorry. I should have done this earlier. Test one. That's okay. All right. Yeah, I kind of had this, uh, I kind of had the same concerns to start off um, because I guess I think like Downward Spiral went like three times platinum. I don't even think Fragile went platinum once. Um, but I actually, I, I kind of think, I, you know, I actually think when you brought it up, I think I said something. I don't know why we would talk about any album other than The Fragile. Um, as good as Downward Spiral is, I think The Fragile is probably one of the best albums in the history of music. So um, I'm happy to talk about The Fragile. I'm sure a lot of other people, when they heard we're doing a Downward Spiral pot or a, a Nine Inch Nails podcast, they're probably thinking we're going to do Downward Spiral. And half of them probably just turned off. And uh, they're no longer listening, so fuck them anyway. Well, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing. So, I mean, you know, we both grew up in the Cleveland area, so Trent Reznor, you know, kind of got his start in our backyard. And I think Nine Inch Nails was on the radar in the Midwest, uh, you know, right from the start in the late 80s. And obviously, the release of Pretty Hate Machine was kind of a landmark record in, in the way that it took, I don't know, in new wave and industrial all these different elements and kind of forged them into this like unique thing that it you, when you listen to his influences you know as i got older and i listened to more electronic music i was like oh this isn't as groundbreaking as it sounded but because i heard nine inch nails first it really was groundbreaking because it brought all of these disparate elements together and then you had this like really interesting like unique singer on top of it uh pretty hate machine Carl was released in 89, and it did go triple platinum. It was a huge success, but a slow burn. The Downward Spiral, on the other hand, released in 94, was not a slow burn. After a couple EPs and some pretty huge tours, uh, Ninus Nails was primed and ready. That quadruple platinum album uh, landed at number two on Billboard, largely on the strength of that single Closer, which, again, kind of cementing the idea that Trent Reznor was going to use evocative, you know, lyrical and musical imagery to kind of cement a left of center point that somehow still was popular and on top 40 radio it's kind of one of the funniest things ever to listen to the edit of closer uh because it's like yeah. every third word <laughs> but it was 1999 yeah. so some four five years later before he would follow up the downward spiral with the fragile and i think my recollection at the time was i was super excited about the record uh it debuted at number one it did go double platinum i think it largely was viewed as a as kind of a uh, kind of not a letdown, but not as successful as the downward spiral. But when you look at the numbers, it actually was quite the, uh, you know, it was quite the, and I think it helps because double platinum records, I think like each record sold counts as two. So that might skew those numbers, but it, it, it wasn't some huge commercial flop. It just wasn't the downward spiral. It was also 1999 and Jinko jeans and Limp Bizkit were like kind of the two biggest things going uh, <laughs> did you did you listen to this record when it first came out? Were were you on was Nine Inch Nails on your radar back in the late nineties? 
Um, no. Well, all right. Yes and no. So um, one thing I always find interesting is that like when I look at the numbers, I never, I honestly don't know how, um, I don't know how reliable Wikipedia is for these sales mm-hmm. numbers. I just find it interesting that like when you look at Downward Spiral and Pretty Hate Machine, the U.S. sales are like 3 million plus. And one's gone three, the other went four times platinum. So I'm assuming a lot of that, uh, a little bit of that extra was worldwide. When I look at the U.S. sales for the fragile, the U.S. sales like 898,000, but something goes like two times platinum. So I'm assuming the bulk of that was worldwide. That's just kind of nuts to me. But um, I think Nine Inch Nails was on everybody's radar because if you were watching um, music videos, which everybody was watching music videos, um, unless you were born in 1993 and you were seven or ten between 99 and 2003 uh, music videos were probably done for the most part for you they're a novelty that popped up every once in a while and you 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 probably haven't seen nearly as many as the rest of us but i mean nine ish nails was all over all the time um every time much music or vh1 or mtv did a nostalgia thing they hearkened right back to nine ish nails videos and even when they did current stuff, they were playing Nine Inch Nails videos. So they were always all over. So I always knew who they were. I was never the biggest Nine Inch Nails fan. Huh. I never dug the downward spiral. Everybody says, great, you would love it. Um, it's dark. It's gritty. And I I, I honestly think I, I even... Wow. It didn't age well with me either. Like, I thought it was boring then. I think it's an utterly boring album. I was just never into it. But... Uh, I mean, the production was always good. He always had a good voice. And every time you saw live anything from them, um, it was freaking awesome. Like, you know, those, it was like, and he's like one of the most talked about live performances ever. I mean, that, that was like such like a big claim for him and that band among my friends and people I know. Um, so when The Fragile came out, I don't think I wanted to get it. I didn't want to get it. I think you told me to get it. I think I, I'm really having a hard time recollecting this because I know I didn't buy it on my own opinion. Um, if you had left this up to me, I would have never listened to Nine Inch Nails again. I think I got it because you told me I should get it. I don't think that you were as high up on it at the time, but I think you thought I would like it. I have no idea why you thought that. Um, I think you just knew me very well. And holy shit, when I got the Fragile, I thought to myself, this is probably one of the best th- things i've ever heard in the history of hearing anything for anybody um wow and it's not only that this was the first time i also this i might be a little high on this record because it kind of has the benefit of being the first for me this is kind of the first time i thought or i was i was made aware that sound and sonic space can truly be just a work of art as well as be like a really good songs kind of at the same time um and I mean, I didn't get that up until up until this point. So I, I, this has always kind of held a special place to me that way. Um, not that art and music was anything I was ever really capable of, of hitting, but just from a listener standpoint. So yeah, not really the biggest fan until this came out. And to be frank with you, I'm still not, it, it didn't make me go and like Downward Spiral anymore. Um, I actually thought that even going forward, Nine Inch Nails just did better. I thought with Teeth, was better than down i don't think and i mean not as good as a fragile but i thought with teeth in year zero i thought those were improvements over pretty hate machine and downward spiral well and so i think that's a really interesting dichotomy to this conversation because i'm a fan of you know head like a hole and down in it and i'm thinking pretty hate machines the the bee's knees the downward spiral is knocking my teeth out for my entire like run through high school it's it's a record that i listen to constantly 
Uh, and I, I think as a, far as a concept record, it's one of the most solid pieces of music I've ever heard. It's probably the record, those first two albums, if somebody walks up to you on the street and says, hey, you know, I'm new to here, what's the first Nine Inch Nails record I should listen to? Uh, you probably need to tell them to listen to one of, you know, either Pretty Hate Machine or Downward Spiral. But I agree with you. Our opinions coincide on the fragile and that to me, it re- represented the zenith of everything he was building towards over the all those over that first decade of music. And uh, what's most interesting is it was born of, uh, you know, a period of, you know, indecision and writer's block. It was it was a tormenting process for him. And I think the music was all that much better uh, for it. But I also agree that my opinion of post the fragile i i find myself going back to with teeth hesitation marks uh this you know the fragile itself more than i do those first two records and i think a lot of it has to do with the probably the same kind of youthful angst that was driving resner on the creative side was what was driving me as a listener and so i think that you know 14 year old me was you know jumping up and down every time I heard Mr. Self-Destruct, but now as a guy getting close to 40, it doesn't, when you remove that from it, there's not a lot under the hood, so to speak, whereas with The Fragile, man, there are so many layers to this album and so much stuff that you can keep kind of coming back to. So I I guess the long short of it, for anybody listening, that's why we chose The Fragile, because it was the record we both, <laughs> we both feel like this might be the peak, and so I, I think that, you know, it's our podcast, and that's what we chose to do. And I think... Yeah, <laughs> nobody's gonna argue that it's not one of the best Nine Inch Nails albums. It's a somewhat subjective thing, uh, you know. When you get to that top two or three with a band that's been doing music for thirty years, Carl, let's launch right into this, man. So, you know, the first thing you'll notice when you when you pull out the Fragile, if you if you've got the CD version, is there's a left and a right, which I thought was such a clever. It's not a disc one, a disc two. It's like here's the left half and the right half. Uh, the album opens with somewhat damaged, which to me is. Man, I it's it's got to be it's not my favorite album opener from Nine Inch Nails. Uh, that is actually going to be All the Love in the World from With Teeth, but it's pretty close, man. This is like a more twisted, more proggy version of Mr. Self-Destruct. Both albums kind of start the same. You've got like a, a single drum beat kind of building and building, but somewhat damaged with that it's like a 3-4 and a 4-4 mixed together. There's like two different musical things going throughout the entire song, like this kind of polyrhythm thing. It's just a genius song. It's building, it builds to a crescendo. It's a a genius open. It's kind of plotting, but in a really menacing way. What are your thoughts on this album opener? Uh, I I think it's killer. Um, There's something I'm going to kind of repeat, um, I, I think, through this podcast. Um and it's it's hard not to because the production on the album is very consistent but uh, it's a very raw um it's a very hard track i like it i might agree with you though i didn't think about the opening tracks but i might agree with you on with teeth um it might be that might be one of the best album openers i've ever heard um but yeah i mean honestly though that being said it's not like i can complain um about this being an album opener i and i again something else i'm going to repeat a lot i think the lyrics um, on this track are just drop dead amazing so what it, it's it's um i don't know i'm gonna gush about this album like i said it's like one of my favorite of all time but yes uh it, it's a solid solid opener um we go from that to the day the world went away uh just another you know another perfect tune you know what what can i say or what can i complain about here um it, it, trent reznor's got this um 
I don't know. It's really weird. He's got this way of doing a very, very dry vocal track on pretty much this entire mm-hmm. album. Um, among all this really processed stuff. And it's weird to hear a guy like that do such a dry vocal track because, just be fair, he doesn't have... Um, he, he's, he's not like Celine Dion. No. He's, his voice isn't the thing being highlighted with pretty much any of these, but his voice is the thing pr- pretty much being highlighted with almost all of these. Um, the way he kind of emotes through what he sings, is it's, it's just very hard and it's edgy and it's aggressive. Um, I like it. But this track... Um, being being kind of a such a slow burn, um, he doesn't get very aggressive with it. Um, he gets really aggressive with a lot of the rest of the tunes on here. In fact, almost most of them. But this one here, um, he keeps it very he keeps it very sparse. But it, it's perfect and it works really well with the tune. The whole tune's a slow burn. His vocals just kind of add to it. It's almost like. It's really weird because it's like his vocals are kind of a highlight of the tune because they're very sparse. It's a very small part of the tune. So it's like the one thing you don't get a lot of. So you're really listening to it uh, or listening for it. But the rest of the song itself is just this really slow burn sonicscape that really doesn't need the vocals to survive. But it's somehow the vocals are essential to it. So um, I I could go all day probably on this like four minute track. I could probably talk longer about this than I can a typical Dream Theater song. Yeah. Um, so I'll just I'll just give it over to you. Otherwise, I'll just ramble on forever. So the a couple things to note. This was the first single. Uh, I actually have you know I have all the singles from this record, and this was this was one of the first promos that was brought out. And I remember up until. You know, back in the late 90s, the internet wasn't what it is today, so it was difficult to find information. Carl, I had bought the Downward Spiral before I started high school, and this damn record didn't come out until I was three months away from graduating. So there was a long period of time where I was anticipating the next... I I literally grew from an adolescent into an adult in the time period it took for Trent Reznor to create this freaking record. And so, interestingly enough, you know, he he had... done an interview where he joked that you know it was taking a long time his grandmother had died he was he was suffering with writer's block there had been some half aborted you know half baked attempts to kind of record that had been stalled you know he was going up and down didn't know what kind of record he wanted to make and then he he there was this interview where he said basically i'm going to make a pop album and and it was it was a tongue in cheek thing that didn't come off his tongue as cheek and i think he didn't really know what he was going to do but when this was the first thing i heard Interesting to note, a song from a, a drum machine king with no drums in it, you know, this this kind of four and a half minute long uh, kind of dirge. It's like, oh, that's not a pop song, but it's freaking amazing. And I agree with you. It's 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 an awesome juxtaposition between the first and second track and kind of immediately you get this, you know, the candidness of his lyrics on earlier works is part of the charm, right? You've got this guy who's, who's not really singing, you know... The downward spiral, for all of its artistic merit, is is brutal in its directness. This is kind of a different take on that. I'm going to there's going to be lyrical themes. I'm going to be a little bit more uh, a little bit more prone to using prose and and less just kind of saying what I'm thinking. Carl, the next track is the frail. It's the first of many instrumentals on the record. One of the things I like about this album, and this is what I I tell to people when when they look at me sideways when I say it's it's one of my favorite records ever. 
Trent Reznor is an amazing instrumentalist, and there's no other point in the Nine Inch Nails catalog where I think there's this well of a integration between the instrumental and vocal stuff. Almost a third of this record is instrumental, but it doesn't feel like that until you you don't notice it until you tally it up because the instrumentals are so kind of key to the flow of the album from start to finish. The Frail is just this beautiful piano piece that kind of serves as a precursor to The Wretched. What are your thoughts on The Frail? Yeah, this is going to be one of those albums where, because like typically I know I'm very critical of instrumentals between tracks or short soundscapes or motifs or however you want to call them. Um, this is going to be, I think, the one album where they do this somewhat regularly that I don't skip any of them. Um, I mean, this to me, this is like a desert island record to me. Like this is like a like a top five of everything I've ever listened to. So. It's pretty much every track on here I listen to. I don't skip anything, and I, I think that uh, this is probably the best of all of them because it's it's kind of one of the um, great uses of an instrumental that kind of bridges tracks together uh, between um, between the day the world went away and the wretched. The, there are other tracks on here that do that well. I just think that this happens to be the best example. Uh, this is the one I will. I'll never skip it. Um, and we tie from we tie the day the world went away to the wretched. Now, the wretched wasn't a single. I don't think it was. Um, this is one of my favorite songs of all time. Uh, this is easily going to be my favorite song on the album. Wow! This is my favorite. It might. This might be my favorite lyric of all time. My favorite set of lyrics that I've ever heard from any human being. Wow! Um, I'm so happy we're doing this yes. podcast. You have like I have learned more about you in the last 15 minutes. <laughs> Like, I didn't know we, any of this. Yeah, this we, yeah, we never talk about this. We never talked about, like, in just our regular conversations, we've never really talked about Nine Inch Nails. That's funny. No, this is all. Please continue. I'm sorry I interrupted. That's, this is awesome. It's a great song. I can't. Um, yeah. Yeah, I love it. To me, and this is another one that I could literally do 20 minutes on if we just let me go. So I'll try to keep it concise. But um, I don't know exactly what he intended the lyrics on this song to be about. Um, I'm going to have a very similar conversation when you get into wearing this together. Um, but there are so many lines in this song that I can, th- I think anybody who reads the lyrics of this track can probably have at least two or three people that they would love to say some of these words to that they've met in their life. Um, and I mean, I'm no exception. I don't, I'm not the kind of person who likes to hang on to angst. Or things I felt when I was a teenager or even as an adult, just to, just to be honest. Um, I try to cut things loose pretty quickly. But there are some people. There's some people and some moments that are going to hang on to. Some negative moments that everybody's going to hang on to. And they're just like like I said, there are just some people I would love to say some of these lines to. Um, this has the benefit of being one of those rare songs where it could be very straightforward lyrically. Very unpoetic. And then very poetic. Um, the the I, I think kind of the difference between the chorus and the first and second verse alone are just one's very straightforward and these other two um, aren't. So I love this track. I love the way he's kind of he's kind of even aggressive when he sings the not loud parts. He just doesn't yell them. But then when we get to the chorus, he's just straight up yelling. It is not screaming. He's not singing. But there's melody to it. It's catchy. Easily my favorite song on the album, one of my favorite songs of all time, on one of my favorite albums of all time. Yeah, this is one of those tracks that I remember when I first got the record, I thought this would have been a great opener for the album. But 
as the fourth track, it's it's still in a perfect spot. It's it's you know it's brooding, it's dark, it's aggressive and heavy, but in a completely plotting way. It reminds me a lot of the song musically. It reminded me of the track "Reptile" from uh, the Downward Spiral, which might be my favorite song on that record. Uh, I just think that's a genius piece of music, and this kind of has that same you know halftime just grinding feel to it. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. It's a great lyric. It's a great performance, Carl. The wretched leads into the, we're in this together. Now, best part about we're in this together is that it's a seven and a half minute long song that I never get sick of listening to. There's no wasted space no. in it. Uh, the drums, especially, so I love that freaking snare. Like the crack on that snare is so. This is one of the first things I remember hearing as a young man. Going, wow, I need drums to sound like that. You know, uh, interesting to note. Uh, there's an interview where Reznor talks about this song in detail and talks about how it was one of the ones that they spent the longest amount of time on mixing and remixing. He couldn't get the feel right. He was frustrated with it. He really liked the melody. He really liked the lyrics, but he couldn't get the vehicle right for it. And it ended up being as simple as he realized that, you know, the chorus needed to have a completely different drum beat to it. And then it became kind of this different driving song. And he really struggled with the vocal and ended up going with what ended up being the scratch vocal that they had been working with the whole time in the mix that was kind of pitchy and his voice is breaking apart. And he realized, you know, this was one of the songs that made him realize that on this record, he was going to have to make concessions to the engineer in him for the artist in him. And I thought it was a really interesting way he put it, basically saying that, you know, the engineer in me says it needs to be a better vocal we need to do this, we need to do that. But the artist in me says, no, this song means this to me, and that is why I sang it that way, and I'm going to leave it that way. To my ears, it sounds like the perfect vocal. I can't imagine. it's. You've said this before, and you'll probably say it again, that the kind of rawness of the vocals works so well when combined with the music. Uh, and yeah, I think this, for me, might be my favorite Trent Reznor lyric of any of his albums. I think it's a genius. A lot of this record, obviously... It's a concept record about a guy falling apart. It's a concept record about grief. It's a concept record about relationships. It's kind of about a lot of different things all at the same time, which is why it's so magical. What do you think about this track, man? Have you ever gotten like a clear definition as to what this song, what the lyrics were in reference to? Because I've no, read a few things. I've read it was about his grandmother, um, his relationship with her, because I think that she had passed or got really sick somewhere around here. Um, I've read it was about her. She heroin passed addiction. away, yeah. Yeah, I've read that it was about a drug addiction, and I've read that it was—I've read that it was a traditional love song. Um, I've heard people say that it was very much um, inspired by David Bowie's Heroes, or uh, so I don't know. Mm -hmm. I yep. I I know, like, like I'm not a very poetic person. You know me. I'm not a very deep guy. To me, when I hear these lyrics, um, I take from it. Um, I take from it a very solid love song, as cheesy as it is, and he probably didn't mean it that way, but I think that's kind of the beautiful thing about lyrics. Um, if you don't know what they're about, they can still mean something to you. Um, I love this track. The only reason it's not my favorite track on the album is because on the album is a song called The Wretched. But aside from that, I mean, this track is great. I actually kind of think very similarly about the song as I do The Wretched. Um, I think from, from a, a, a vocal standpoint, um, he kind of does sing those verses in a pretty aggressive manner without, of course, getting really heavy or yelling. And then, of course, when the chorus comes in, he's just kind of belting it out. Um, th I, there's not a lot of guys or not a lot of people, I think, who are singers, and, and was what I mean specifically, that 
I think, adequately take how they're feeling and sing that. And now, that's not to say that these people are bad singers. Um, there's people who sing about a lot, of, who sing through a wide range of emotions. James Labrie, Celine Dion. Um, th- there's a lot of people, uh, Sammy Hagar, who do this, right? But Celine Dion sings how she sings. Her her version of getting emotive with something is a very classical way. You know, it's almost like it's almost like she's a flute. You know what I mean? Like her version of getting emotive into something is a, is a largely about a performance or James Labrie's version of changing is a lot about adopting characters. He tends to be pretty theatric, I think, with the way his voice changes. It's almost like he's thinking of different people, and he's being different people when he sings it. Some people, I think like Trent Reznor, or what's his name from Silverchair? His last name's Davis. What's his name? It's John, It's Daniel Johns. Um, Daniel John Davis. Where'd I get that from? Um, some people somehow manage to take the track, right? The actual music and how they're intending to feel something and sing it just based on raw emotion without getting carried away with themselves. And he does that, Trent Reznor does that perfectly, pretty much on this whole album. But I think one of the greatest examples is this track here. Um, This is probably the biggest single off this album that anybody remembers, you know? I I think there's a few singles on here. This, there are Star Fuckers. I can't wait till we get to that one. Um, uh, There's a few, but uh, this one, again, like I said... um, the only reason this isn't my favorite track is because it comes after the wretched, and the wretched is on this album. But it's it's amazing. It's it's certainly one of the uh, one of the keepers. Um, the fragile title track, the title track to the album, um, it really doesn't disappoint. You put on your notes here um, the anti ballad, and yeah, you know you're kind of right. Um, it's another home run. Really kind of highlights that. You know. He might not be, um, he might not be like the best singer on the planet, but he does have a great voice, um, and I love this song because I think it does kind of highlight, just, I don't know, it just kind of highlights his voice a little better. It's another slow burn, right? Um, that we got out of the day the world went away, but this one's a little catchier. I think it's got like a just like a little bit of a stronger melody to it, because um, like, the chorus is actually something that you're going to remember. Where I think on the slow burn, the day the world went away, I think you're more remembering the noise. You know, you're remembering that like, the, you know, you remember that like unison guitar bend in the in the in the in the, uh, in the beginning, and you're all the loud sonicscape in the middle to the end. Where this one, I think you're really remembering the chorus. So, uh, kind of a slow burn that really has the benefit of being really catchy. I think he did a fantastic job with it. Yeah, I remember my. They performed this at the on the ninety nine or two thousand. I think it was the ninety nine MTV Video Music Awards. And I remember thinking like, "Oh man, I need to see this concert. Like that's just that dude's awesome. The song's great. It's a great title track. I agree with everything you said. And yeah, it feels very much like it's the it's kind of the the anti power ballad of the record. I mean, it's it's kind of serving that structure, but uh, just another really inspirational song and how you can write something that is. I don't know what the word is. It's it's not a rock song. It's not a ballad. It's somewhere in between, but it doesn't feel like something from a Poison record. You know, I remember it being very inspiring yes. to me that like there's other ways to kind of crack that nut. Carl, the fragile leads into just like you imagine, which is the next instrumental on the record. Is my favorite instrumental on the record? Eh, I don't know. Yes, it's it's up. It's just a great song. It's it's this unlike the first instrumental is very driving, and it has a it 
it very much carries a musical theme that again bridges the two tracks this and even deeper uh i dig this a lot man if if anything it feels almost like a musical code out of the fragile what are your thoughts on just like you imagined um once upon a time um i could play the keys i could play keys that well and that fast like that rapidly like he does kind of in the middle of that i probably still could but the thing i could never do in my entire life, I have tried and tried and tried and tried to fit into a song that piano thing that happens in the middle yeah. where what he's playing is in a key that fit. It's almost like he's playing it. I don't know how to say this because this is going to sound really musically ignorant to say. Um, you'll probably have to help me out here. But it almost sounds like he's playing something in like a major or a minor key that fits modally into something that's going on in the tune but in, in a way that you're not used to hearing in a very uncommon way that sits apart from what you're going to expect it's very counterintuitive to listen to very dissonant but it fits so well i have tried to do that a thousand times um and the i could nail down playing an awesome piano line i've done it a thousand times but i could never put something i could never put it above or something beneath it that separated the keys in such a creepy manner. I could just never do it. I've tried and tried and tried and tried. Um, he, Trent Reznor's, at least here, every, in this time of his life, uh, he had just a, such a great imagination musically. I know that I know that musically he's not an idiot. I know he's very smart musically, um, but that's not enough. He's got this, this imagination that you just can't duplicate. I know I said that the... Uh, the, the, the first most kind of tie-in together instrumental was my favorite one on the album. I might have to flip that. I might have to say that this one is um, my favorite one, or if not the best one on the album, because um, holy shit, it's good. You know, I, I love this track too. Never skip it. It's one of my favorite ones to listen to. Um, uh, hands down. Hands down. Um, we go from that into even deeper. I, I love that The Wretched is my favorite track on the album. I wish I could say every track here is my favorite track on the album because this this track here especially is awesome. It comes off as kind of like another slow burn um, because it's kind of it kind of has the benefit of that, you know, kind of builds up a little bit. But really, this is kind of a in a in a nine inch nails way, even deeper is kind of a typical verse chorus, verse chorus kind of tune. It just kind of happens to be like a little like a little laid back, like it looks like a little toned down, like the loud parts of it aren't as heavy or hard. I guess heavy is the wrong word because I don't think a lot of this album's heavy. This, a lot of this album's hard um, in, in just like an industrial kind of way, you know, um, where you kind of would think like certain 90s hip hop was hard in a hip hop kind of way, but it wasn't heavy, but it was still kind of aggressive. This is like really hard in an industrial way. So I don't want to say the word heavy too often, but um this this track doesn't get as hard i guess is what i'm trying to say as a lot of like the other burners on the album so it's kind of laid back it gets loud um it's got a excellent use of the violin kind of in the in a, towards the end there which i think is pretty cool so um another awesome track again i we've got eight tracks in on industrial rock, which you know me, I don't listen to industrial music. I hate electronic music. I just don't listen to it. And we're eight tracks in on something I never skip. I mean, by now, I've skipped one or two tracks on some of my other favorite records. You mm -hmm. know? So, Absolutely. Anyway, love, love this track. Uh, take it away or else you'll lose me forever. The, the, the coolest part about 
Trent Reznor, the artist, is he is so unafraid to like he he's this weird dichotomy he works by himself you know this record he had a touring band but like, nobody played on the record really i mean there's a couple performances here and there but he he kind of went away and sequestered himself and i think what's cool is that whether it's the you know working on this record or working with atticus ross and all the composing they've done in the last 10 years with you know the score work that they've done that they've been winning you know freaking oscars for uh he is he is both as an insulated musician, an incredibly created and talent, talented guy. But he's also an amazing collaborator. Uh, this track is one of the one of the handful of songs that he actually brought Dr. Dre in to work with on him. You know, mm, if you would ask me which song exactly, if you had said which song did you know, so Dr. Dre mixed the mixed the track and I think contributed some stuff to it. I think it's just that that willingness to be in the throes of a creative process. They spent over two years recording this record and thinking to yourself like. Who's my favorite producer? I love Dr. Dre. Come in. I, I want you to work on this with me. You know, that's something that I think anybody who's ever written or created something, you know how difficult it is when you get that attached to something to be like, hey, I want somebody else to take a look at this, let alone somebody from a completely different point of view. And I, 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 there's a lot of different versions of a lot of these songs. This record has been released and re-released. So I've, I've heard lots of the demos. It is amazing how transformative a lot of this music became over the course of the process. And I I don't think you get a record this good from a guy sitting in his bedroom. You get a record this good from a guy who sits in his bedroom and then calls up his 10 best friends. To, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, And that might yeah. be the difference between this and Pretty Hate Machine. Because Pretty Hate Machine is Trent Reznor. That is Trent Reznor. That is, you know, a 25-year-old Trent Reznor sitting in his bedroom making a record. And then this is like, well, I've been making records for 10 years. I've got all this money and clout. I'm going to call Bob Ezrin, you know, the famous Kiss producer, to come in and help me sequence it. I'm going to call Dr. Dre in and ask him to, you know, do some... I'm going to call up Atticus Ross. I'm going to call all these guys in, and we're going to make this amazing thing, even though it's a super personal statement. It's a very interesting thing. This is a great example of that. Carl, the next track is Pilgrimage. It's another instrumental... My God, I love Pilgrimage. You know, it's it's super cool. the The whole marching band thing was was a hundred percent a synthetic thing. They they worked for weeks on kind of building up in uh, they weren't using Pro Tools, whatever software they were using at the time. They were you know trying to create like an artificial marching band, which I always thought was kind of the coolest thing because you could just like go record a marching band, or you could spend like and we've done this, you know that. Like I could just play the damn drum fill, or I can spend the next three hours trying to program it. And sometimes you just want to do it the hard way. And so that's, uh, <laughs> you know, that's what they did. It's a super cool track. I think, again, it's a really strong instrumental. You know, of the four instrumentals on the first half of this disc, uh, this and Just Like You Imagine, I think, are, are both kind of way up there. I uh, Again, a genius track. What are your thoughts on Pilgrimage? Um. I love it. What would you, would you, what would you call that, like, keyboard motif in there? Because like, that's, like... I don't know. It sounds like a very like Hebrew style melody to me. You know, it's not quite Middle East, but it's not quite North than that. I don't know. It, um, it's got a great. Um, it's a very unique motif. I love it. It this track doesn't necessarily bridge two tracks together. You know, it's just a great. Yeah, it's just a great instrumental. It's worth listening to. One of the things we talked about on our tool podcast because the um, on the Anima because Anima's got a lot of in the middle filler things going on. But a lot of them are kind of kind of like humor based, you know? They're kind of like an inside joke that if you get you're lucky enough to be 
in on the joke. And if you don't get, you're just wondering why it's on the album, which I'm sure the guys who made the album think that that's the best part of the joke, right? It's like satire. Like the most satisfying part about satire is the idiot who doesn't get it, you know? Um, and who else was, oh, um, uh, Failure, uh, Fantastic Planet. Lot, very different. Lots of instrumental things in between tracks, but none of it's a joke. It's just good sonic soundscapes that hopefully you're supposed to enjoy, but it just doesn't nail it 100% of the time. I, this album nails it 100% of the time, and even when it's not trying to tie tracks together, the instrumental itself is still worth listening to. And unlike, um, unlike a Dream Theater instrumental, it's not meant to be like some virtuoso journey that's taking you a bunch of places. Um, at least I don't think it is. It's just like a short, um, really just amazing piece of something to listen to, which, again, I don't skip it. Where by now, in a lot of other albums, I've probably started skipping half of those middle points because either A, in Tool's case, I've heard the joke enough and I think it's funny. I don't need to listen to it again. Or in Failure's case, I might just not have thought that it was that good. And earlier when I told you, by now, on even some of my favorite records, I'm skipping tracks, I think Failure and Tool... The um, Fantastic Planet and Anima are two really good examples of amazing records where by now I'm skipping some things to get to some of the actual proper quote-unquote songs. Here, again, I've not skipped anything. Uh, so Pil Pilgrimage, again, I'll go 20 minutes if you let me, but I love the track. I'll move on. No, you don't. It's funny because on your notes and my notes, we put really just the, or the notes I got from you. I'm sure you have more thorough notes than the ones you shared with me, but we put heaviest song on the album, and yes... A lot of people are probably going to tell you Starfuckers is heaviest track on the album. And I, I guess I couldn't tell them that they're wrong, but they are wrong. No, you don't is the heaviest track on here. Um, it's just like the most proper, like hard rock tune, right? It's got that like, that's got like that heavy verse riff. It's got that really kind of like up paced drums for the chorus. Love this track. Again, his vocals nail it. It's kind of aggressive without being heavy. But the, it's it's the guitars that are heavy, and it's got like a it's got like a pretty typical like industrial drum beat when it picks up. So it's it, I don't know. Love the track, killer. We're what now we're ten tracks into it, and I still love the album. That never happens. Um, again, great track. Take it away, Jim. I'm or I'll go on all day. Man, yeah, no, you don't. That from this first time I ever listened to this record, it's a song that that stuck out because it is so jarring, especially. You know, on this first first disc, you've got three really aggressive songs. You've got The Wretched, and you've got We're In This Together, and then you've got No You Don't. But nothing is as overtly metal as No You Don't. But the, my favorite part about it is that it is... It's the it's the tempo again. It's slower. It's not it's not March of the Pigs. So I think that it really works in a, in a uh, industrial sense. I love the track. I love the vocal. It it again serves to kind of create and sustain momentum throughout and kind of tie together. It the album is really a perfect balance of quiet and loud, of instrumental and vocal, you know, all the way through. And this this first disc is is bulletproof. Carl, the next track is La Mer. Uh, it's a quasi instrumental. It really is an instrumental, but there is a there is a vocal though. It's not sung by Reznor in it. Uh, you get kind of the first reprisal of some themes that are going to musical themes and motifs that carry on. Carl, when Trent Reznor first started writing the fragile, you know, his grandmother got sick and died and she was an instrumental figure in raising him. He was he's kind of like floundering in the vacuum of the success that was the downward spiral, struggling to figure out what to do next. He, 
He rented a big house and he went and, and sequestered himself with the intent of writing his next record. And after weeks and weeks, all he had was this, Lemaire. And, uh, or Lemur. I'm not sure how to pronounce it correctly. But, and I remember reading in interviews at the time that he was so disheartened that it was all he was able to come up with. But when you listen to it, you see that the seeds for kind of the, the melodic motifs that are going to become present in the album are in this track. Uh, the piano work is amazing. Uh, Trent Reznor's primary instrument and training was as a pianist. That's why when you strip it all away, if nothing else, he's just an amazing piano player. Interestingly enough, yesterday or on Friday, the soundtrack for mid-90s, which is the new, uh, what's his face? The super bad guy directed a movie uh, and Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross did the score. They're also doing the score for the new Watchmen TV show that HBO is producing, which I can't wait for. Oh, cool. Uh, but the score is... I did not know that they were doing a Watchmen show. Yeah, for 2019. And I, if there is, there is nothing so in this cool. world that I am more excited about, I'm going to be honest with you, because I, I hold that, that source material near and dear to my heart. Uh, but the, the, the whole point is the score for the mid-90s is essentially just solo piano playing. Uh, and it's as close to like classical Reznor as you're ever going to get. But man, the guy's a fantastic piano player. Like his, he's obviously steeped in classical repertoire. He can play hand in like the best of them. Uh, and this is a great example of it. It's jazzy. I love jazz. I, I I got this record before I really became a jazz head. But but this moments like this that I think really kind of add another flavor that you don't get on his previous work. Lemire, uh, take it away, man. Tell me what you think about this track. I pretty much everything you just said, honestly. Um, it's got another. This is a really good example of a, of a, and it's a really good example of taking things that. And this is what makes. I'm, I'm going to try to say this in a way that, that doesn't make me sound arrogant in one way, or that I'm not trying to uh, debase myself in another way. There are things that you write. There are things that I write. We've shared these things with each other. About 80 or 90% of the things we share with each other don't turn into anything, at least especially not in the original carnation. If you and I share something with each other that turns into something, um, it's usually 10% of what I shared with you or what you share with me will turn into something completely different later. And 90% of it gets tossed in the garbage. Now, I'm sure a lot of songwriters are the same way. Um, I, I think, and this song's a really good example of something that I think a lot of people would do. Like a lot of people might play the piano thing that he pretty much plays through the whole thing. Um, that uh, that one underlying kind of piano rhythm thing would probably play that and just toss it because they probably wouldn't know what to do with it. There's probably a lot of people who would come up with something like that because it's not very complicated, right? What he's playing isn't physically difficult to play. It's just the kind of thing that uh, that uh, somebody might stumble on playing and then forget about because they don't they wouldn't know what to do with it. Um, Trent Reznor, and, and this is probably really ignorant to assume because he probably throws a lot of stuff away. But when you listen to a lot of the stuff that that comes out of this guy, it just sounds to me like this is a lot of stuff that a lot of people would have thrown away because they're ignorant. They, they don't have the imagination to to see that this could be something. If they would just look at it a certain way, or, or or if they would just do something just a little different with it, um, and somehow Trent Reznor can turn this entire little piano thing into something that's worth listening to, and it's not just something that's worth listening to, like, oh, I'm you know 
that's good for a girl, you know, like I think a lot of people, you know, would say that about industrial rock music. I think there's a lot of people who will listen to industrial music and say, well, that's good. That's good for that rocks for industrial or for instrumental stuff, you know, but he takes it just makes it plain amazing. Like there's no asterisk needed. There's there's no ex- explanation needed. It's just a really good instrumental. Um, and the, like you said, it's the keys that make it great. I'm not even a jazz head, and I've never actually thought of it as kind of a jazz tune. But you're right. I mean, it does carry a very strong jazz feel to it. And normally, if I hear something that's jazz, I don't get it. My ears get confused, and I just turn it off because I'm just a simpleton that way. But um, this, like you said, he's a ama- he's an amazing pianist. He definitely got his teeth cut playing keyboards. Have you ever seen? Jim, have you ever seen those um, clips of him? I've forgotten what band. You, just, you could just like see clips of him on YouTube of playing keys in this or that 80s band. Ever see any of those? No, I don't think I've ever checked any of that out. You could. I, I don't know how you find it because I'm not even sure the names of the bands anymore. But like, I think if you just Google like early Trent Reznor keys or something like that, you'll find like he's playing with these like new wave pop, type, like playing synth on like TV shows with these like new wave pop bands. And it's kind of funny to see because he... He would eventually turn into this. like So he's a gifted keyboardist, a gifted pianist. And again, this instrumental is no, this instrumental really is no exception to that. Um, it's it's simply, it's just simply fantastic. Um, we go from that to The Great Below. You, it, it is a really cool, this is a really cool ballad. Um, I, how do I put this? It's, a, you would think that if you're doing like a two disc set, um, usually with two disc albums, I'll, I'll, I'll reset myself. Usually with two disc albums, one album is the album. Like one album is like the album's worth of things you want to listen to. And the second album sucks. And most of the time, my biggest criticism on a lot of two album things is that I don't think the first album closes strong enough because typically they front load with the best songs in the first album. This one, um, is a little different because I think both albums on here were both um, both discs happen to be really strong. And if you're going to do a really strong two album thing, I think like a good play or like a good theatrical production, you want the first half to be closed on some sort of like a, a some a good, you want it to be a good tune, but you don't necessarily want it to be like a, like a, um, like a high point, right? You want it to be kind of something that gives you a reason to listen to the next half of it. And this is a, a really good example of that. It is a, it's a ballad. Um, you put on your notes here, and I like this because you and I are going to disagree. You said it's like a better version of Hurt. I would actually say Hurt's a little better than this because I think Hurt's a little catchier. Um, and with, with also having the benefit of being strongly emotive, um, this one is very emotive. I don't think there's really much about it that's catchy. So if you were to ask me to pick this or Hurt, I probably would pick Hurt. But I mean, I can't fault you for thinking this is a better version of Hurt because... It, it's very artsy and it's very kind of dark and it is very emotive. Very emo. I would say emotive. It's very emotional, and I like that about this track. But anyway, I think it's a great way to close out the first disc here. Um, so again, we're twelve tracks in. I haven't even talked about things I'm sick of listening to, let alone things I would skip. Um, great, great album. Great way to close the first half. Yeah, I mean, hurts an amazing end to the downward spiral. If I never hear the song "Hurt" again, I won't hurt. I just—I think I'm just so played out on it. It is that single to me. The great below is like—I want to write a song like "Hurt," but I want to push myself to do something that's a little less accessible. 
And I think that is maybe that was a better way to put it. Not a better version, but a a, a more refined version of that. But I, yes, in the same vein, I love the vocal performance. I love the uh, the the crescendo with the vocal. Instead of, you know, on Hurt, it kind of, like, leads into these big three, like, destructive, you know, angular chords, this buzzsaw distorted chords. This turns into, like, this kind of acoustic guitar motif that kind of brings up uh, a lyrical passage that becomes the chorus to another song later on. So kind of like how La Mer is, you know, the Into the Void, essentially, like the flip side of that. This is the the flip side of, of something else, and I, I like that a lot. The Great Below... Leads us into the way out is through, which is a a slow building quasi instrumental. Again, that it, it really just there's just a little bit of singing at the end of it, but it's this four minute piece of music that builds and builds and builds and then crashes into this amazing vocal performance. I remember when they were running commercials. They used to run commercials, Carl, for records before they came back out on TV. And uh, the commercial, the promo video for this had Reznor singing the vocal line in a booth, but like just acapella like there was just an isolated vocal and i remember being so taken aback by how uh by how by how stripped away it sounded and then when you hear it in the final piece of the song you're like oh my god uh it's it's not if if you put a gun to my head i might 50 50 say this is my favorite song on the record i like this song so much uh anybody who's known me i have tried to co-opt the lyrics the title, the musical motifs. I have tried to rip off this song for 20 years. <laughs> uh, in every way you can possibly try to rip it off, it is it has spoken to me in a lot of ways. And I think really it's the the idea, the strength of less is more. Uh, this to me is, is a good example of taking something and stripping away all the artifice and just reducing it to, you know, something that really is just, you know, four lines of lyrics and really three chords, but pushing it and and making it move with dynamics in a way that it's impactful is really can't say enough about it man i i'm a huge fan what are your thoughts on the way out is through you know since i guess you and i are kind of falling in love with each other all over again because i don't think either of us realized how big of a nine inch nails fan we were um no no (laughs) before doing this podcast um i you have sent me you have a song it's called um you have a song called way out is through right I or, did. Yeah, um, you did. I, for some reason, I never knew you were this big of a fan of this album. I honestly thought for the longest time that you were doing that tune because you were a big Alanis Morissette fan. Uh, <laughs> because, again, she's got a great song, which is essentially has that same line in it. Um, and I'm not knocking Alanis Morissette. I love that track. It's one of my favorite Alanis Morissette songs. And for some reason, I never made the bridge between you and this tune. But yes, you're right. This track is great. It's another, it's, well, you're right, quasi-instrumental. Um, it's an excellent way to open up the second album. So I kind of went to where I thought that typically when you close two albums, uh, close a two-disc album, like you close the first disc, you usually want to try to do it on a banger because usually two discs, both one of the discs is awesome, the other one sucks. There's a couple exceptions to that. Dream Theater Six Degrees, um, they closed first disc on a low note, but the entire second disc is probably the whole point to buying the record in the first place. It's awesome. And this is another exception. But usually... Since your second disc usually sucks, you want to open it up with a banger. And they don't. They open up the second disc with The Way Out Is Through, which is not super exciting, but it's just another really awesome instrumental. And again, unlike like a Dream Theater or a Symphony X or some, you know, some some bands that are known for doing big instrumentals, right? Um, they don't have to do anything 
like amazingly exciting, super awesome, fantastic here. Um, what they really just had to do was they just made like a really good sounding kind of soundscape. When, like you said, there's some um, vocal work in there, which is incredibly worthwhile to listen to. So I love it. I love it. it's a great way to open the second album or second disc. You would almost even think the next track, Into the Void, should open the second disc because holy shit, this is a strong track. Um, but it doesn't have to. But we get to Into the Void. This is this was one of the singles on here. Um, you know, you know that synth line through the whole intro. I have actually. It's funny you said you've tried to copy way out of through a lot. I have tried to copy that uh, something similar to that bass line um, or that synth line in the whole intro. But I've tried to do that on bass, and honestly, I've tried to do that with much more of like a like a blues rock feel. Like I've tried to take a bass line that's like that synth line and make it some sort of like a Texas blues rock thing. Like it's like a Texas rock thing that just kind of has like a hint of country to it. Um, if you just kind of, I just always thought that that rhythm would work really well. It always kind of reminded me of like, well, this is something I could see Joe Eli singing on if they just kind of reworked, you know, reworked the key a little bit. Um, but I love this track. I think that the, um, it's kind of weird because like, Compared to the rest of the album, like it's catchy, but this isn't really hard. It's not even really too much of a rock song. It's very unique to the album, actually. So I love this track. Um, I love his vocals on it. I love the ah ah ahs, which normally I would just make me roll my eyes. But I think coming out of the way out is through. This is an awesome track to do. So it, out of all the proper songs, it might not. It might be my least favorite. But I'm talking about the difference between a nine and a half and a ten. Love the track anyway. It's it's a good one. Yeah, this is one that took a long time to grow on me. Uh, when I first got the record, I, I I found myself skipping it. And I think it was the I don't know what it was. It, it's very simplistic in a lot of ways. But now I think it's genius. It, it, there's a there's a strong new wave element to a lot of what Reznor does and has done over the years. You know, he's a huge fan of, of groups like New Order, and he obviously loved the Joy Division stuff. And as I got older and I got really into synth pop and 80s new wave and kind of post-punk, uh, very heavy into it, you know, and, and consider that stuff to be very influential on me now as a musician, I, I started to see the, the charm in a lot of this. So this song, it's funk, it's it's but it's also very mechanical. It's it's like something Simple Minds would have done. You know, like it's a it's a genius catchy poppy song without being a pop song. And it's not guitar driven, which so much of this record, even though he started off with the intention of not wanting to write a guitar record because he had just done that with the Downward Spiral, so much of the record is permeated with electric guitar uh, and it be, kind of became his go-to instrument when he was composing. So a song like this, you know, which is really just a drum and bass groove, for the most part, genius. Uh, Carl, Into the Void was a big single for the record. I dated a girl once, and this was her favorite Nine Inch Nails song, and I didn't even hold it against her after we broke up. I just kept liking it. So, uh, <laughs> The next track is Where Is Everybody? Uh, I God, I love this track. It, it Kind of in the same, the same tempo of Into the Void, kind of the same kind of pocket, but I think a much, you know, a super interesting lyric, like a lyric play play on lyrics especially with the choruses i i love i always thought like man there are only so many words that rhyme with pleading and he found them all <laughs> and like definitely had his thesaurus ready and like all the vocal ad-libbing that comes with the final chorus like all of his like vocal runs that he does which again are, are 
just on pitch enough to not sound grating, but are, are obviously like just ad libs that he did in the vocal booth. Man, I love this song. I can't get enough of uh, Where Is Everybody? What are your thoughts on this track? Yeah, Where Is Everybody? Um, it's a, it's near one of my favorite songs on the album. Um, the lyrics on here, you're right. It's kind of like really repetitive for a rhyming scheme. Um, but it works so good. There's a lot of guitar on here, but the guitar on here sounds a lot like how he does a lot of his synth stuff. It sounds very empty. Like, he kind of, I don't know if he just direct plugged it in, like took the head, bypassed miking a cabinet, just plugged it in. But um, it's, it's got this like really thin tone to it. I love it. Um, the production on here, again, you're not really talking like a very hard production, but it's still somehow it's very raw. And his vocals kind of carry it for not being like some sort of virtuoso sung type of a song. Um, there's a lot of vocal layering. He's actually doing a lot of different things vocally with it. I love this track. It's another near one that's like near one of my favorite tracks on the album. If The Wretched wasn't on this album, I'd be having an argument about whether or not this one is my favorite. Um, we go from that to The Mark Has Been Made. It's another instrumental that isn't used to tie two tracks together. Um, he does something very similar here with the guitars. There's some guitars in here very... Um, it's another instrumental, but the guitar is very thin. There's kind of this like very like open, sort of empty drum beat to it. And it, you know, it's it's kind of burns. You know, it's, it's like it's like another four and a half minute song, just kind of slow burning to the end, making a lot of noise. Great instrumental. It's in a perfect spot on the album. I love it. Good tune. Yeah, I I'm a huge fan of it. I think the mark has been made is I think it's been used a lot. I think it's been used a lot uh in soundtrack work. Uh it's just a great instrumental. It is, it's the kind of, what I like about his instrumentals on this record, especially. So a lot of times you hear an instrumental from a band and you think, why didn't you just put vocals on it? You know, like that's, that's usually my complaint with instrumentals. It's like, that was a great song. And I'm often left feeling like, you know, especially like in the case of like a lot of prog or hard rock bands, it's Instead of having a singer sing, we're just going to guitar solo where the vocals would be, and that, that does nothing for me. This is an example of a song that, it's a composition. There is no place for lyrics. There is no obvious vocal melody missing. It was obviously written with the intention of just being a piece of music, uh, and very much a precursor to a lot of the score work he was going to end up doing in the 2000s. Carl, the mark has been made leads us into please um, another kind of mid-tempo song with an awesome bass line. I... I love breathe. It is it is deceivingly heavy. It's not heavy like the wretched, or like no you don't. But it's a heavy driving track, and I think it it really serves to kind of give a jolt of uh you know at this point kind of five tracks into the second disc, you don't really have anything that's kind of pushing uh, in terms of feel, and I think this song does. So even though it's not necessarily an upbeat song in terms of tempo, I think it it drives. I dig the song a ton. What are your thoughts on please? Yeah, it reminds me a lot of like a failure track. Like yeah. I could like picture this being a failure song, except uh, Trent Reznor's singing on it, and he's kind of singing, kind of yelling, and um, it suits it so good. I love this track. When I first when I first got the album, this was actually a track that I regularly skipped, and I don't know, some years ago, I I found that it was amazing, and it almost became one of my favorite tracks on the album. I think because you kind of like didn't realize how good it was until so long, until after so long. So you start listening to it like a lot. And I did. 
Um, though this track is great. Starfuckers. So this is a lot of people's... Um, I, a lot of people love this track, and I, I think... There, there, and there's a good reason why. I think it's a great track. Um, it's kind of got that... This is probably the most typical industrial... Like, if you were to ask me to describe to you what, like, industrial rock in the 90s was typically going to be like, it had this kind of, like, up-tempo industrial beat that kind of borderlines on, like, a fat, like a fast, you know, electronic type of a beat. Um, but when you kind of get to that chorus or that whole pre-chorus, um, it, it's it's different. It turns into just a, like a very – it turns into the kind of thing that, like, you could – like Marilyn Manson would like love like it's just kind of like a uh, it's got like an industrialized like drum beat it's got just like a really heavy but thick guitar riff to it and you're just kind of yelling something on top of it I love this track um I I I, I sometimes back in the day I used to skip please just to get to this track until kind of please grew on me a bit so um Starfucker, it's another great inclusion on here. Pretty typical message. I think the I think the message here is kind of like a lot about um, you know the celebrity and and the, that cult of personality. So pretty typical message. It's not anything superb lyrically, but the vocals on it, the vocals really make the song what it is. Yeah, I have a I have an interesting journey with this track. So you know the notes that I, I prepared for this record, I, I actually typed out uh, sometime last week when we had decided we were going to do this record. I kind of just typed up my notes real quick and did it from memory. And then I've listened to this album actually about three times since then. So Starfuckers was one of my favorite tracks when I first got the record, mostly because for a lot of people's probably the same reason, it reminded me of something from Downward Spiral. It easily fits on the Burn EP or on Downward Spiral uh, in terms of production. It's, It's like March of the Pigs. It's like Wish. It's like a lot of those tracks, right? Very similar. Like you said, a very paint by numbers industrial rock song. So I liked it. And then over time, I grew to kind of, because of the obviousness of it and because of it, it I don't know, it just, it, it became something that I would skip because I felt like, you know, it's so repetitive. I know how it goes. And then I'm listening to this album the last couple of weeks and I'm thinking to myself, no, man, like the entire second disc builds slowly in momentum to this track, which is kind of like the final like fist in the air. Uh, it's a huge, heavy number. You know, the Carly Simon, like the, the You're So Vain thing is I... I used to think it was stupid and now I think it's genius. I'm also a big Carly Simon fan, which I wasn't 15 years ago, so I I think it it works in a lot of ways. I love the vocal. It, it's a great song, man. I I take back what I wrote, man. It's not mad. This is like one of the best. This is it belongs there and it creates momentum for the second disc. Uh and it leads into complication, which is the next instrumental on the album. And boy oh boy, is it a great instrumental. It's not long. It's only a couple minutes long, but it's it's got this super like buzzsaw guitar thing that that kind of builds around. It's it feels to me like kind it's not sequenced like a segue, but it feels very much like the perfect musical bridge between this and then the, the Starfuckers. And then I'm looking forward to joining you finally. What are your thoughts on Complication? Yeah, it's a great motif. Um, like you said, it's not very long. Not a whole ton that I have to say on it. I I it doesn't tie any tracks together. Um, it doesn't really have any like sonic repetition to anything that's come before it or going to happen afterwards. It's good to have there. Uh, it's interesting to listen to. And you know what? It does kind of carry a little bit of like an industrial beat to it, which is mm-hmm. which is I guess 
a little reminiscent from Starfuckers, but not a lot to it. It's just really enjoyable to listen to. I'm looking forward to joining you finally. This this is like the lowest point on the album for me. And by lowest point, I mean like I give the song an eight. Um, it's, so it's probably like my least favorite track on here. I like the drums on here. Um, I guess the drums and the production of the drums is kind of the most interesting part to the tune. Um, there's some key things that happen and some vocals that happen kind of sparsely throughout. Um, it it's kind of reminds me more of the instrumental tracks, to be honest with you. And to me, it feels like between complication and I'm looking forward to joining you, we finally we kind of get two instrumentals in a row, even though he kind of sings on it. But mm-hmm. like, you know what I mean? Like it just doesn't feel like a like a proper song. It feels like we get two instrumentals, so it's not bad though. I don't skip it. I still enjoy listening to it. It's just not my favorite of the album. I really like the way the drums sound on it. I I think from a narrative standpoint, it serves a purpose in that it's creating. You know, you kind of had. Uh, six or seven tracks in a row of, of very kind of plodding, driving, momentum building. And so this serves as kind of the beginning of the final collapse musically. Uh, the record does kind of simmer at the end. And I think that this kind of serves that place. It leads right into the big uh, come down, which is a kind of the last, I, I would say, upbeat song for the record. And it's one of my favorites. I, I think it's a great track. I think the big come down is... It was necessary. It, it, to me, it kind of ties together a lot of the lyrical themes for the record. Uh, you know, there's there's just the kind of repetition of bye bye and and all of that going on in it that I think is it very much feels like it's it's kind of like a like a lyrical version of acceptance almost. And I, I dig the track a ton, man. I, I I love the big come down. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah. So normally. If we were talking about a lot of other bands, two-disc albums, when we get to this kind of part of it, this this kind of like second half of the second disc, when things start kind of slowing down a lot, this is normally something I'd be very critical about. And I'm going to go back to something I said earlier when I said that this was one of the, this was pretty much the first time I realized like how art and music can kind of like, where art can really truly be music and music could truly be art as opposed to just writing a bunch of songs. Um is that I usually don't li- I usually don't skip around this album. This is one of those things that if I'm in the mood to listen to, I usually just try to listen to it. And if I can't listen to the whole thing, if I'm like on a car trip, I usually just kind of pick up from where I left off and just kind of go through it that way. And by here, I mean because it's it's a very um, I mean it, it might it, it might be a little upbeat compared to what we're getting at the moment, but compared to the rest of the album, it's, it's, it is starting to, sl- this song is kind of part of that slowdown. Um, but by here, I am so kind of grabbed by the artistic nature of the album, sonically, lyrically, um, with just kind of the color and the texture and the mood. Um, I'm so kind of like pulled in that I, I, I don't, this isn't stuff that I consider something worth skipping or I don't necessarily consider it like a low point of the album. I just consider the, the arts kind of slowing down, but it, it's all kind of part of the art at the same time. Um, so normally this would be something that I might kind of come to criticize that. Oh, well, once we get the star fuckers, the rest of it just kind of stops. And where that might be true, if you don't like the artistic landscape of this as much as I do, um, and you're really just looking for the songs, that might be something very valid to say. I guess it just kind of depends on your outlook. But I love the big come down. I think that the title in and of itself is a pretty good 
image for what's happening. We are really kind of just, yeah, we are coming down for the rest of this. For all I know, and again, I don't know the lyrical reference. I, I've struggled to try to find the lyrical references to a lot of this. So I, I would love to know what this was referred to. If I were to ever interview Trent Reznor, I would probably interview him solely on this album. I'd probably just go track by track. What did you mean? I would just, everything would be, what did you mean by this? What were you trying to do? But lyrically, I would be very curious as to the meaning of all these tunes, this one included. Um, we go from that to Underneath It All. Um, underneath It All, you put something on your notes here, and I hope I'm not stealing your thunder um, because I'm not trying to, but I didn't think about it this way, but I agree. I think I would actually maybe switch track 10 and 11 because underneath it all may have been even better if it was the last track on the album. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, that being said, I'm not mad. It's kind of like another slow burner. I love the track and I kind of like where it is. Um, it kind of also reminds me a little bit of an instrumental, like there's vocals on it, but they kind of serve it more musically as opposed to necessarily vocally, which I know again, sounds like a very ignorant way to say it's just, it's kind of how I feel about the track, but I like Underneath It All, but you're right. I think it would have uh, served very well as an album closer, too. You know, of all of the musical themes on the record, there's like a handful, probably six or seven of re repeated, repeated motifs or, 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 you know, chord themes. The All I Do, I Can Still Feel You, like that melody and lyric, uh, which is featured a handful of times. I, this is probably my favorite occurrence of it, and that is really kind of this song serves as a vehicle to reprise that that lyrical and melodic motif. I dig the track so much, man. I, I love the processing. I love the build of it. You know, it's only it's barely three minutes long, but it, it every second of it is it makes sense. And I I love underneath it all. You know, there was there's something about because the vocals are so dry throughout, like when you get into Starfuckers. And the, the the verse vocals are obviously, you know, they've taken 20 takes and they're like slicing up each syllable and kind of processing it. And it creates a very like computerized, digitized. I love that. I love that kind of stuff because it's not all the, it's just only on that song at that part of the song, right? So it, it, it really, it serves as kind of a stark contrast. And the same with this, it's, you know the vocals are very processed almost to the point of, of you know, being a computer. And I, it just serves so well. Uh, the last track is Ripe with Decay. Again, you know, my memory of this song was that it's a long instrumental that I'm not always in the mood for, but every time I've listened to this album in the last couple weeks, I listen to it in its entirety, mostly, again, because it, it does reprise a couple other themes, and I think it's actually... And maybe I, I just I wrote a review on the uh, on the, the, the score for mid-'90s, so I listened to the, the, the Reznor score for Gone Girl. I listened to the score for... Uh, uh, for the girl with the dragon tattoo. And I was thinking to my, and the social network, like, God, man, Trent Reznor. And then I listened to that ghost, that four disc, the, the all instrumental release. It's like, man, I love this dude's instrumental stuff. I, I probably spent six or seven hours this week when I was working on writing projects, having his instrumental stuff playing in the background. And so in that context, you know, again, this is a piece of that before he was doing any of his composing work. I mean, this record came out five or six years before they did the social network soundtrack, uh, this is, I think it's genius. I think it's the right way to end the record. Uh, I think it's, it's mostly, it's mostly just sitting there as a way to kind of conclude it with a, uh, I don't know, with a, with a musical motif that isn't in your face and punching you. And, and I think that's kind of what it calls for. What are your thoughts on this, this last track? 
Love it. I love where it sits. There isn't uh, there isn't a ton that I could say about it that I haven't said about a lot of the other tracks on here. Um, I, I it's you're right. His instrumental stuff is great, and here's and again, I know musically he's a very smart person. He's a gifted pianist, um, and I just don't think you can get to being. I don't think you can get to being a gifted pianist or a gifted uh, guitar player without having a, a strong fundamental. Even if you don't know it, even if you're naturally gifted, your brain somehow has a strong fundamental knowledge of of music, themes, melodies, and what have you. Um, and especially if you're creatively like a creative pianist or a creative guitar player. Um, I mean, I've met people who un- I've, I've met people who understand music and theme and melody, and they're not creative people. I, they 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 understand what they're playing, but they can't jam, they can't write. It, it, there's a little bit of a difference to it. So I'm, I'm not trying to say that uncreative people who are virtuosos or whatnot don't understand that stuff. They absolutely do. It's just they understand it in a different way. They understand what they're playing, but there's something a little different about doing it creatively. Um, but he doesn't. He kind of like takes I stick the stuff that he knows. Um, and he takes kind of like his artistic mind, like his, his the artistry that he knows how to do. And he just he kind of puts it together in something that's worth listening to, even if albeit by all definitions of the word, it might be entirely boring. If you were to tell me that you thought "Ripe" with the K was a boring track, and you thought it was a boring way to close out an album, it's not like I could argue with you. Um, it certainly could fit the definition of being a boring tune, but I am so into. By now, like I said, like I, I don't really skip this. I usually just do kind of a journey one way through. I'm so into the art and the artistic, you know, statements being made here that to me it just feels like a natural way just to end the whole thing and a natural extension of everything I've heard. So I love this track. Um, think it's a great way to end the album. I think we've gotten through, we've gotten through what are we at? 23 tracks of an album that I don't skip. Where usually by now I'm I've skipped half the album with a lot of people's two disc albums. Um, I'm sorely critical of the idea that they even did a two disc album in the first place. Not even am I just critical that a band even has you know does a two disc album in the first place because they don't have enough good songs to make ones. So you're wondering why they did it in the first place. Um, I'm not even usually by now I'm just angry at the audacity that a band tried to do a two disc album. And we're talking about industrial rock, which I don't even like in the first place. Somehow, Trent Reznor did 80% of my pet peeves on an album. Um, things that I would be bitching about left and right. But he just nailed everything. He just nailed it all. Um, we're the end of the album. It's perfect as far as I'm concerned. Um, I love it. If I were to land on a deserted island, this would be one I'm taking with me. Yeah, I'm, I'm so happy we, we went with this and not the downward spiral. And I, I didn't, I mean, over the course of this hour conversation, like, you, I've... I'm not even joking. I don't think I knew barely anything you just said. I had no idea you were such a fan of it. And I love the fact that you don't consider the Downward Spiral a great record. And you're not a huge fan of Pretty Hit Machine. Because I feel like 99 out of 109 Inch Nails fans, if we're having a conversation about this record, it's going to start with, well, the Downward Spiral is the best. And then there's this. So I, I really, I, I can't underscore no. Yeah, I actually like Pretty Hate Machine more than The Downward Spiral, yeah, I too. just think that's awesome. And I and I, I consider, I think it's cool that we're coming from different sides of the same coin, but kind of uniting on this on this front with this album. I love, love, love this record. To me, I agree with you. When I have the conversation about double albums, and I just had this conversation with a, with a buddy uh, a few weeks back, 
And I was like, you know, it's so difficult. There's so many double records. Uh, just about every band I really like has tried it at one point or another. And most of the time, I feel like I'm left with a record that would have just been better if it was a single disc. It's not a it's a it's a popular opinion. I think most people feel that way. And I mean, you go through all the classic records and I, I when I when I try to cite examples to the contrary, this is one of the only ones that I can come up with where I say I wouldn't make any alterations to it. You know, I wouldn't take anything off. I wouldn't switch around the track listing. Uh, I think it was perfect and I enjoy every second of it. The other two that I often think of being physical graffiti from Led Zeppelin, which I consider to be my favorite Led Zeppelin record and just a perfect album. And even then I would concede that there might be a couple moments on there that are, are, are maybe a bit out of place. And then of course, six degrees from dream theater, which again, when we did the podcast on it, I said, I felt like the overture was maybe the one glaring thing I would pull off. But when it comes to this record, I, I, it's, I hope all three of them are in that, you know, they're a plus albums. It's hard to write an hour and 45 minutes of music, man, and not have there be something that is not connecting with you. But I think that considering how much of a painful birth it was, I'm glad that they didn't decide at the last second to kind of cut it down to a single disc. I don't think it would have done this material justice to just put all the singles on a single album with a couple instrumentals and called it a record. I'm so happy he stuck to his guns and released what we have today. Uh, do you, Carl, do you have a, you've said that the wretched is your favorite track. Uh, I think for me, uh, if I'm going to pick a favorite song, uh, I don't know, I, I'm going to say uh, The Way Out Is Through. I think I think that is, it's probably the only song like that I can think from an artist that, that's been nailed in that way. Kind of a big crescendo building thing. Do you have a favorite half of the disc? I used to play this game all the time with friends I used to work with. What's the best side, the left or the right side? Which one do you say, man? Or are they are they two sides of the same coin? Um, but they are two sides of the same coin, I yeah. would say, but I'm going to say the left side. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you're, cause you're right. I mean, it, it is one big piece of art, but, um, I mean, my favorite, my favorite track is, is on that left side. Um, I, it's just the one that, you know, that I like the most. Um, that, that being said, it's, it's hard to say that I, I mean, I couldn't take one without the other. Like I'd never... I never try to listen to one without the other, but it's happened sometimes. And if you're going to start from start to finish, the one that's going to get the, the fewer spins is going to be the second half. So that happens sometimes, as much to my chagrin. But um, I do like the left side a little better. Yeah, I mean, even the artwork and the packaging is genius. I mean, like everything about this record uh, from start to finish is, is perfect. I think if I had to pick a side to listen to right now, I might pick the right side. Uh, only because you took the left side and I can't listen to it at the same time as you. So we'll just we'll just pass them back and forth. Uh, <laughs> do you like... I like when I laugh at my own jokes and nobody else does. <laughs> do you... So you, you've, you've already kind of said this, but I'm going to ask again, you know, where does this album rank for you? you? You put it at the top of your Nine Inch Nails pile? Oh, absolutely. Well, I, I mean, it's... Yeah, it's top of my Nine Inch Nails pile. Uh, pile i'm not super versed in like in in and uh nine inch nails entire catalog i'm really not um i've listened to with teeth i've listened to year zero wasn't the fuck sure what i was supposed to do with ghosts um you know so i mean i've listened i've listened to some bit of everything um and I, and it's not bad like it's good like i can recognize why people love nine inch nails um 
nothing that he's done since the fragile has really grabbed me like typically industrial music that kind of thing just isn't my thing um and you would say and I, i've i've had people say this to me then why on earth isn't with teeth your favorite nine inch nails album they're like i don't get it if industrial rock isn't your thing and you're going to like one nine inch nails album why is it the fragile which is the might be the most one of the most artsy industrial things and why isn't it with teeth which is i've been told and people are right with teeth might be the most digestible album but by your average music listener it's very that's very possibly true i have no idea i don't know how to answer that question um because you're right i mean if i were to lay out all the things i like about an, about music to you and you were to pick you know a nine inch nails album that like this guy would really like this you might pick with teeth and that would it wouldn't make any sense for it not to be with teeth so i have no idea um but i just i i don't know i don't like any other nine inch nails album enough to just want to listen to it but i love the fragile um i can appreciate the other nine inch nails albums i don't think they're garbage i can see why people like them and um but this the fragile i i love it love it to death yeah i mean there's a it, there's a there's a insulated charm to pretty hate machine you know, there's a just a sheer ferocity to burn and the downward spiral that are that are kind of awe inspiring. With teeth, you know, given that there was a four or five year wait between this and with teeth, I, I think it was the the next logical place to go. And I I love that record. It's my second or third, depending on the day, favorite Nine Inch Nails record. Year Zero, that's always been the one I couldn't. That's the nut I couldn't crack. And then, you know he went on that hiatus and he picks up and puts down the moniker. So it's, it's been difficult over time, but the, you know, beginning with hesitation marks a few years back and the three EPs that he's released, I feel like the, the recent Nine Inch Nails output, which has been mostly industrial uh, and electronic leaning, I've enjoyed, but nothing of any of those albums that I've talked about, nothing really compares to just the, the sheer, uh, it's it's almost like there's a brazen disregard for boundaries with the fragile that I just I'm still in awe of you know nearly 20 years later that he doesn't really do before or since I, I know that Billy Corgan has talked about that this new EP thing or record that they're putting out that's only got eight songs you know they did this reunion tour and they're going to put out this record and he said you know they they only put it out they kind of recorded it really quickly it's just kind of like a mixtape thing he, he thinks of it more like a Pisces Iscariot but he, you know, now that they've done this tour, he's like, I just, I still feel like there's one more. I'm going to do, I want to do one more thing. All of us, you know, me, James and Jimmy, I want to do one more melancholy, one more big, dramatic, you know, far reaching work. I just feel like there's one more. And I think to myself, yeah, but I don't think melancholy is that solid of a record. Your one more is just going to be a bloated mess. If Trent Reznor said, I've got one more fragile in me, I would be like, I'm ready. Let's do it. You know? And like, yeah. You know oh, what I yeah. mean? But if any other artist said that, I'd be like, please don't. Like, you know, like, yeah. I don't I don't need another 35 songs where there's only 10 that I really want to listen to. Like, I don't want to have to. Right. Who are you to think that you have it in you to do that when yeah. almost nobody else does? But you know what I mean? So that, I guess my the long-winded point I'm trying to make is that I, I really think that because of what this is and, and where it sits, I don't think it's a record he could have made before or after. And I think that's why because it's the only one like it is why I'm so into it. I'm really glad we had this conversation, man. Are you, have you listened to any of the recent EPs that have come out from Nine Inch Nails, the Bad Witch or the the other two? 
that he put out in the last the, few years. The was the hesitation, whatever yeah. the bad witch. I, I forgot the other one. Um, no, I have not listened to them. I'm aware that they exist. I almost, um, I almost touched on them doing my kind of research for this podcast because I knew you were going to ask about them. And oddly enough, I just didn't have time because. Well, Daredevil season three hit Netflix, so oh, how is the it? Two days. The, oh, it's fucking great, by the way. Um, it's so it sucks so much because Jessica Jones season one, awesome. Um, Daredevil one and two, awesome. Punisher season one, awesome. Um, Luke Cage season one, awesome. But Jessica Jones season two kind of sucked. Uh, Luke Cage season two kind of sucked. Um, it's it, it, so I was just really worried that uh, this was gonna suck too, but no, it's it's a knock out of the park. You're gonna love it. No, but Daredevil. anyway, the two days. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, go ahead. I was just gonna say it, I've always felt like it was a cut above the the, the fray. Yes. Better storytelling, a little bit. Um, but I, the two days that I was gonna spend listening to just brushing up on other Nine Inch Nail stuff that I haven't heard or I wasn't familiar with that I was going to do while I was at work. I actually spent watching um, the Daredevil show. So uh, didn't get to uh, listening to these because I do not do my homework and I am a bad, bad podcast co-host. For <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't think I've ever heard you speak so eloquently on a topic ever. So I'm glad we did this one. Uh, <laughs> uh, and with that being said, uh, because we, you know, it is your Desert Island album. What is any final thoughts that you you want to conclude the podcast with? Um, yeah, don't do two disc albums um, if you're not good enough to do one this good. Because once we review that, I will trash it, and the ten people who listen to me trashing it are going to know that I don't like it, and that might not carry any weight. But uh, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> All right, man. Well, hey, uh, well said. <laughs> All right. It's funny well, that we make those jokes because, like, our listenership is well. It's, it's, like, it's, like, skyrocketed well above hundreds. But I just, I don't know why. I just like making the jokes that five people listen to the podcast, even though it's, like, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Well, I, I have five people that I'm paying to just sit there and then listen to each episode <laughs> over and over. <laughs> For those of you... You want to reach out to us geekusapodcast at gmail.com or follow us on twitter at geekusa underscore podcast see ya